Dr. Jones, how much more we dig? Not much more, Shorty. All the signs point to this spot. Are Nazis still out there? Watching us right now. You not afraid of Nazis? Not particularly. You not afraid of curse? The curse the locals wouldn't stop talking about. I'm here, aren't I? Indy, I think I find something. I don't believe it. It's another lost episode, isn't it? Yeah, another lost episode. Indy, me got bad feeling about this. All right, short round. I'm going with your gut on this one. What do you mean? Throw it back in the hole. Maybe we'll leave this one for the Nazis. Me like the way you think, Dr. Jones. You hear that engine racing? I'm gonna wait until at least the RPMs are in a reasonable color before I continue. The children of the night. What podcasts they make. Hey there. This is Rich Outfield. And if my timing is right, then it is the Halloween season. And I'm going to present to you a Halloween episode of the Rich Outcast. Do I do this every year? Seems like I did last year. For me, Halloween is every day. I, you know, I come from a place of snakes and spiders and other things that go bump in the night. And people look at me, they, they ask, why are you dressed like it's Halloween? You look so absurd. You look so obscene. Why can't they see they're just like me? It's the same, it's the same in the whole wide world. I, well, you know, I do these things just to keep them at at bay. Because Halloween is every day. My cousin is not a, a big fan of Halloween. He had a strong religious upbringing. And Halloween was the holiday of the devil. And, uh... His parents would not only not celebrate Halloween or let their kids celebrate Halloween, but they would make a a point of being away from the house on that day so their children would not be influenced by seeing other kids trick-or-treating. No trick-or-treaters would come and bother them to try and taint their family with the filth that is Samhain, that is All Hallows' Eve. And, you know, he's carried that over into adulthood and he still doesn't like Halloween and he still always takes his kids out of town on that day. So, you know, I guess the it's vicious cycle. Not really sure why I'm telling you this. So I try to present something for either Halloween or Christmas every year. I try to do the same thing on the Doonstief, or, or maybe back in the Doonstief days, I would try and do those two things. And now that the Doonstief days are behind us, 
uh, I shift that to the Rish Outcast. I always try to have a Christmas episode and a Halloween episode. So this is our Halloween show, but what do I do? What do I present? What do I unearth? Indy, look! And I thought that I would be ambitious and release a story from 2019 called The Night Clerk. Now, I feel like there was a mini-series, a BBC mini-series. It might not have been BBC. It might have been Sky. It might have been... God, what was it? Well, it was called The Night Manager, and it had Tom Hiddleston in it. And I feel like Hugh Laurie was the bad guy. But it could have been called The Night Clerk. I don't know. Nor do I give a crap. Should that be an outtake? I'm not sure if The Night Clerk is a good title. And I'm not sure if The Night Clerk is a good story. But you're about to find out the latter. Probably already know the former. This is the second completed story in the Dead and Breakfast series. And I released the first story that I wrote called True Ghost Encounter on this show. And I believe it's out there to purchase if people want it. And I don't think that I'm going to reiterate the premise of that series because it's self-evident if you read the story. But we'll talk a little bit about it afterward, and that's fine. The question I'm wondering is, do I suggest people listen to True Ghost Encounter if they have not already listened to it before they listened to The Night Clerk? And I'm going to say no. I'm going to ask you if you haven't read True Ghost Encounter or if you've forgotten True Ghost Encounter, don't read it. Don't go back and listen to it. Go ahead and listen to Night Clerk. And I would be curious if it's more enjoyable if you have listened to the other story or if it's more enjoyable if you have not listened to the other story. Maybe it's not enjoyable at all. But here you go. And I will meet you on the other side. The Night Clerk Dead and Breakfast 2 Written and Narrated by Rish Outfield 1. Natalie Whitmore made her way to the upper level of the unfamiliar used bookstore, beginning to suspect that this was all just a prank. She was interviewing for a job, which was supposed to involve check-ins and clerking duties, but not at the Gem State Bookstore in Boise, but merely meeting there. She'd brought her resume and worn a skirt she hated, and was not at all surprised to find absolutely nobody at the top-floor study tables where she'd been told to meet Mrs. Bice. The science fiction, mystery, and classic sections were up here, as well as a pair of worn couches and some kind of leaning tower of books art project that seemed to have gotten some minor water damage. Natalie needed the job, but it was clear she had wasted her time. She turned to go, 
and saw an older woman slowly, strugglingly, making her way to the top of the stairs. "'Miss Whitmore?' she called when she saw her standing there. Natalie considered pretending to be someone else, despite having come all that way, but she pushed that inclination deep down and waved, smiling as best she could. The woman gave her a nod, but not a smile in return. She approached the girl and slowly extended her hand. I am Constance Bice. Natalie shook it. The old woman's hand was cold, as though she had poor circulation, despite the effort she'd made climbing the stairs. Hi there. Do you own this bookstore? No. Care to sit down? There were two couches facing each other, and Natalie said, Sure, and sat down at the nearest one. The older woman sat tentatively, as though worried there'd be a tack or a whoopee cushion there. Maybe she had back problems. Mind if I call you Natalie? she asked, though she rarely would again. It's my name. Good, good. One of my cousins growing up was a Natalie. She waited for the girl to say something about that, and when Natalie finally opened her mouth to comment, she went on. I don't care for my first name. I'm also old as the hills, so call me Mrs. Bice, would you? All right, Natalie said, and then added, Mrs. Bice, as though it had been expected of her. The old woman looked at Natalie's hair, her ears, then down at her legs and shoes. The girl was wearing a skirt and leggings, but wondered if she had been expected to be more dressed up for this meeting. Her interviewer was wearing slacks and a fuzzy gray sweater that looked like it would be torture on the skin. Pretty, Mrs. Bice said at last. Natalie thought she was being described, but she wasn't sure. It could have been her shoes she was commenting on. Regardless, this lady did not strike her as the kind to hand out compliments freely. Excuse me? A nod in her direction. You ever do any modeling? Depends on what you mean. Natalie was aware people found her attractive, though she was not particularly well endowed, and just plain hated her upturned, practically pig-like nose. She wasn't everybody's type, but she had been admired before, by guys and girls. I got my picture taken a couple of times. By friends. By a guy who wanted to be my girlfriend. Thought it would make him special. No money. Uh-huh. The woman's eyes darted to the stairs beside them, then back to Natalie. May I ask you a series of personal questions? Perhaps unusual questions? I guess. But no, the modeling wasn't that kind, if that's what you're asking. Oh, no, I don't care about that, said Mrs. Bice, waving it away. She met the girl's eyes. Do you bore easily? I don't think so. No. Mind being on your feet while working. As long as my shoes are comfortable? No. Mrs. Bice nodded. How are your phone skills? Fine. I worked at a call center one summer. 
and we had to be polite, no matter what. Another nod. She didn't have a list of questions in front of her, but seemed to be ticking boxes in her head. Speak any foreign languages? Does high school German count? Did you do well in it? Not really. Mrs. Bice made a tired sound. Then no, it doesn't. Do you mind working the night shift? I thought this was a receptionist job. Please answer the question. No, I like early mornings, but I'm fine working nights. A pleased nod this time. Good, good. Have you ever had an abortion? Excuse me? Natalie said again. This time she was sure she'd heard wrong. Mrs. Bice shrugged. Not quite an apology, but an acknowledgement that it was something you normally didn't ask at a job interview. Unusual questions, as I said. No, I have not. If you must know, I— Never mind that. Have you lost anyone close to you? You mean dead? Yes. Are your parents alive? The woman asked. Yes, as far as I know. My mom left when I was ten. Aha. Uh -huh. Have you ever known someone who was murdered? Depends on your definition. Elaborate. Natalie just went ahead and answered the question. My uncle and aunt are dead. One killed the other, then killed himself. Does that count? Mrs. Bice sniffed. You are rather open, aren't you? Is that another interview question? I just find it refreshing. She took a little breath. Do you believe in ghosts? Me? No. Now the old woman sat up straighter. Just no, without even thinking. Not, not really. Not, I have an open mind. Not really. I have an open mind. I ask you this because ghosts aren't real. They don't exist. She said it as though imparting a lifetime of wisdom. Okay. You hear me? Sure. Yes. Mrs. Bias went on to her next question. Have you ever heard of the noble oak bed and breakfast? No. Wait. Was it on a show? The one where the husband was gay but stayed with his wife because she was played by a... Mrs. Bice put up her hand. It's in Vernon. I own it. It's what we're interviewing for. Receptionist wanted, Natalie recited. Must be personable, discreet, unsuperstitious. Some light typing, bookkeeping, taking phone calls. Requires all hours of a... I know what the listing said. I wrote it. It's for the desk clerk job at my bed and breakfast. It will be easy work, with little to occupy you most nights. I was about to offer you the job. Natalie Whitmore smiled at that, but didn't let it reach her eyes. So what's with the strange questions? A psychological thing? That's right. I am very choosy about whom I hire. Her gaze became more critical and I am not so easily impressed by a pretty face. Natalie said nothing to that. Really, 
what could you say? 2. Natalie got the job. She was told to show up any time before 5 p.m. on Monday, and she'd be given a tour and instructions. She arrived at the far edge of the small town of Vernon just after 3, but since she had left home at 1 and gotten lost twice, she was already in a sour mood when she parked her little Acura in the lot and looked up at the stately building. Noble Oak B&B was a blocky two-story manor house that would have been at home in a Civil War epic, a romance set during the Depression, or a murder mystery from the fifties. It was mostly made of wood, with ornate white trellises and shutters and support posts, and seemed to have four or five different chimneys that could be seen from her angle, and doubtless more on the other side. It wasn't an ugly building, but it certainly wasn't a place you'd want to honeymoon to, or even get your engagement pictures taken in front of. It appeared to Natalie, though she had absolutely no architectural training, that it had once been considerably smaller, and then expanded upon so extensively that you couldn't tell where the original house ended and the bigger one began. Except that it didn't quite look even, as if they'd run out of money two-thirds of the way through the expansion and decided to cancel the work on one side, leaving it cockeyed. Inside the house was different. It was surprisingly unfurnished, as if all the typical decorations and furniture were off being cleaned. It's only the bare minimum in the lobby. A main desk, two coffee tables, a handful of chairs and lamps, a lonely sofa, an illogical number of throw rugs, and a framed painting of the house, looking exactly as it did today, had remained. A short, bushy-haired young man stood behind the registration desk, and when he saw Natalie walk in, immediately fixed his posture, took his hands from his pockets, then proceeded to pretend to be working. She hoped this guy wasn't going to be trouble. No one else was around. No customers. No staff. Somewhere nearby, a radio played white jazz. She approached the desk. Hello. I'm here. Can I help you? He asked. Then, not waiting for an answer. Welcome to Noble Oaks. Yeah, I'm looking for Mrs. Bice. I'm the new desk clerk. Oh, he said, trying to conceal his delight. You're her. I thought you didn't start until tonight. Yeah, I was supposed to get a tour or something. Oh, sure. Uh-huh. I'll call Connie. Tell her you're here. He reached for the phone, but changed his mind before he could get to it. I'm Mason, he said. I work the desk every other night, like you will be doing. I guessed as much, Natalie said, for want of something to say. The guy wasn't hopelessly unattractive, although he seemed to be leaning toward chubbiness, and his age was impossible to guess. He had all his hair and a round, youthful face, but there were lines around his eyes and forehead that meant he could be somebody's father. It's a good job, he said, apropos of nothing. Hope so. I get through a book a week at least. Impressive, she said, but didn't mean it. Do you read? he asked. Not really. He nodded and looked around the desk, like he'd forgotten something. Do you live around here? 
he asked finally. Me? No. I haven't been to this town since I was a little girl. Three years, then? he asked. And she didn't get the joke. Maybe that she was young, although she thought she had an older face than her twenty-two years. She got the distinct impression he was intimidated by her. I don't live in town either, he said. But sometimes, but sometimes when it's seven o'clock and the sun's blinding me right on the highway, I wish I did. Uh-huh, she said politely. You mentioned a uh, Connie. Is that Mrs. Bice? she asked, remembering the old woman had said something about not being called by her first name. Right. Yes, I I'll call her. This time he managed to grab the phone and press the right number. Yes, Constance, I, I wanted you to... No, nothing wrong. I just... Right, I I'll do that in just a minute. I was just letting you know that your new hire was here. He paused. For a, a tour, she said. Uh, could I be the... He was interrupted. Okay, I'll tell her. What's that? He lowered the phone and, rather awkwardly, looked Natalie over from top to bottom, making her feel naked somehow. Into the phone, he said, A blue long-sleeve sweater, tan pants or, or slacks or something. Couldn't see the shoes. He paused again, listening. Y yes, yes, she is, sure. But professional, sure, yeah. Aquamarine. Natalie said, for no good reason. The sweater's aquamarine. Oh, Mason said, realizing she had heard the whole thing. Uh, sorry about that. Into the phone, he said. No, she doesn't... Okay, I'll tell her. Thanks. He hung up. She'll be out to talk to you in a minute. She wanted me to show you the lounge. That's where you can put your stuff, get a cup of coffee if you drink it. That sort of thing. He led her beyond the main desk, through a door marked Employees Only, and she saw a little space with closets, a television, two tables, a kitchenette, and a bathroom with what might have been a shower in it. It was very orderly and smelled lightly of Lysol. Did she ask what I was wearing just now? He froze. Yeah. Sorry. What was I supposed to be wearing, Jason? Uh, Mason, he said, apologetically, as though he hated his name, too. Sorry, Mason. Why did she ask what I'm wearing? He struggled to make eye contact. She was... She's kind of picky, has her little things. What kind of things? Uh, no hoop earrings, no visible tattoos, no rubber bands. I'm supposed to wear a belt, he rattled off. And smoking. Uh, she hates smoking more than Hitler hated the... He stopped himself before finishing the thought. Hates smoking. There's no smoking in the building, or near the doors. That's fine, Natalie said. I don't smoke. I, I told her you didn't, he said, and gave her a tiny us-versus-them smile. And how did you know that? It's all right. If you do smoke... Just step off the sidewalk by either side door, but try to do it when she's not around. He pointed to a door to the outside, where parked cars and a trash dumpster could be seen. Do you smoke, Mason? He flinched at such a personal question. 
Working with this guy was definitely going to be a problem, unless he got used to her and stopped being so nervous. Then he shrugged. Actually, I did, but stopped when I started working here. Funny, isn't it? It wasn't, but she nodded. You can put your coat in here, he said, pointing to a row of narrow lockers that belonged in a gym bathroom rather than a fancy manor house. If you had a coat, I mean, we get lots of snow here in the winter, and sometimes fall. They lock, too, if you need one, too. He demonstrated by turning the key in one of the lockers and pulling it out. Either he thought she wouldn't know how lockers worked, or he was flustered enough not to know what he was saying. He bumped his elbow on the counter where the coffee machine, toaster, and mini-fridge sat. You don't have to be nervous, she wanted to say, but didn't dare. She had her glasses on and wasn't even made up. She hated to imagine how he'd react at her prettiest. A voice spoke, too loudly, from behind them. There's no one manning the desk, Mason. It was Mrs. Bice. Mason spun around. Yes, right, sorry, just showing her where to put her coat. The coat she didn't have. The old woman did not look amused. Perhaps she was incapable. Thank you. I'd suggest you get back there. Is there a customer? he asked, already moving back toward the lobby. Not at present, thank God, Bice said. And Mason, Miss Whitmore's sweater is not blue. It's green. He tossed another quick glance at Natalie's rather sexless sweater, then left the two women alone. Natalie did not correct her new boss. Mrs. Bice looked her over perhaps checking for tattoos and rubber bands. I hope you found the place all right. I got a little lost, but I asked a man who was working on the... Bice didn't care. Mason is usually fine, but he's been working double shifts these past two weeks, filling in until I could bring you in. That explained some of his edginess. He seems harmless. Her boss wrinkled up her nose. That's one way of putting it. Before him, I had a brother and sister manning the desk, both of them European types, better looking even than you. I don't think I got a single complaint when they were working here. Which meant Mason must have gotten his fair share of them. Or perhaps, guessed Natalie, only one, which was far too many for the owner's taste. Bice brushed an invisible crumb off the counter then wiped her hand on a paper towel. Well, I don't have a lot of time to show you everything, but I'll give you a quick once-around. But first, I need you to sign something for me. She went to a drawer and pulled out a manila folder marked Whitmore N. on it. A direct deposit kind of thing? The old woman went still. We spoke about this, Natalie. I wasn't joking. You're going to need to sign a non-disclosure form about what you see here. You're not to tell anybody, even your mommy and your daddy. They had spoken about it in the bookstore interview, and Natalie had agreed. She was fine with keeping mum about her work experiences, if that was required. But in that moment, Natalie decided that she didn't like her new boss. That she was going to make every effort to like Mason. Since as bad as his first impression had been, he didn't strike her in the least, 
to be an asshole. She nodded, and Mrs. Bias produced a pen. Natalie paused, only for a moment, before signing and dating the form. Her new boss's thank you was crisp and cool, and did little to endear her to Natalie. She got the nickel tour, and the old woman made it clear that she had better things to do than play tour guide. As they came down the stairs of the second floor, which was only guest rooms, a hall, and two supply closets, she said, I hope you'll forgive me, but I really must go, and waited for Natalie's reply. All right. Mason will show you the computer system. Phone two. The schedule is on the bulletin board in the lounge. Let me know any days you need off at least two weeks in advance. Write down any questions you may have, and I'll try to answer them when I come in tomorrow morning. And that was it. The old woman dismissed Natalie with, Be prompt, be polite, and you will do well. Then headed for a door marked Records, No Admittance. Natalie rejoined Mason at the main desk, and he was immediately nervous again. She considered telling him she didn't bite, but decided to pretend she didn't notice his skittishness. He showed her the ropes, logging her onto the computer system, and practically dragged her over to a tall bookcase just beyond the drinking fountain, where she could grab something to read when things got boring. He revealed it like it was an overfilled treasure chest. Thanks, she said, scanning some of the titles. A lot of sci-fi and fantasy books for a bed and breakfast. She wondered how many of these were from Mason's personal collection. She could feel him looking at her, and when she turned, he was wringing his hands. Connie doesn't want us to have our phones, but sometimes you have to, you know? For when you get tired of reading. Uh-huh. There are nights when only one or two rooms are booked, when the phone doesn't ring at all, and you'll pick it up just to make sure it's got a signal. Mason patted his pants pocket. Once she goes home, you can use your phone. Just try to be, you know, inconspicuous about it. Why? Does she have spies? She glanced around, looking for security cameras. Didn't see any. No, most of the employees hate her, Mason said. But, like I said, this is an easy job, and the pay is good, so don't give her an excuse to write you up. Natalie laughed. She writes people up. Like this is a McDonald's or something? Connie can be real OCD about stuff, like wearing a button-up shirt or how you answer the phone or whether the bathroom doors are closed all the way. Last month, she threatened to write me up because I wasn't wearing a belt. Natalie couldn't help but take a look. Mason did appear to be wearing a belt, though his little punch hid it. All right. He glanced back to the main desk. Hey... Uh, Bit of advice? he asked, timid once again. Sure. You ever see a movie where somebody's at a hospital and a patient disappears or starts convulsing or something and their wife runs out and there's nobody at the nurse's desk? Natalie squinted, unsure how this constituted advice. I... I may have. Which movie is this? Lots. Anyway, that's how Connie is about this desk. We might get one customer, he corrected himself, or guest. She likes that word. We might only get one in a two or three hour stretch or longer during the night, 
but Jehovah forbid some vacationing retired person needs a clean towel and there's nobody here to wait on him. Natalie squinted at him again, trying to read his meaning. Do we have towels at the main desk? No, not at all. I'm just saying, that's Connie's thing. Always be at your desk. If it's a night we're both working, which will almost never happen, unless the hotel is booked like crazy, we can trade off hanging out in the break room or taking a nap. But when it's just you, she'll want you standing at attention like a guard at Buckingham Palace. Okay, Natalie said. I'll keep that in mind. He tossed her a shy smile. Well, welcome to the night clerk job. You too, she said stupidly. But it had seemed to fit at the time. Three. Natalie started work. And enjoyed it, for the most part. As a rule, it was tedious. A lot of waiting around. Quite a bit of repetition. A great deal of finding ways to not get bored. She could only dust the front desk or water the flowers so often. And making the guests feel welcome by, in Mrs. Bice's words, being cheerful and looking pretty. The bed and breakfast was small and comfortable, clean and old-fashioned, but awfully ordinary, just a tad shy of being special. Apparently, there had been an overdose there on a night before she was hired. The guest did recover, and sometimes she got the distinct impression that the man and woman she checked in, or man and man from time to time, were not legally wed, or at least not to each other. But it wasn't much more than a place for travelers to spend the night, or old folks to spend a quiet, romantic weekend. No reason that she could see for all the secrecy and paranoia. Natalie found out what the big mystery was, more or less, on her second Saturday night on the job, in the hours her shift overlapped with Mason's. He worked every other night, alternating with her. They both worked Saturday nights together. Mason was a hopelessly geeky sort, and she still made him uneasy, which, for some reason, made her uneasy. He had a tendency to nervously yammer on when he was around Natalie, and one time, when he was walking past her, she thought he had leaned in to smell her hair. When she turned, he apologized, which convinced her he had done it on purpose. While she highly doubted Vernon, Idaho, had any, an hour or two in a whorehouse would probably set him right. Poor guy. She had been telling him about a scare she'd had coming up from the basement level, when she discovered Mason's eyes locked on her chest. Yeah, her first impression had been right. This guy would be trouble. And her mood today wasn't exactly rosy. She had made a credit card payment the day before, only to discover that the interest charge was only $11 less than the payment. She tried to get her head around that concept, but it only made her feel like an explorer drowning in quicksand. So Mason had picked the wrong day to ogle her. Hey, you know my blue eyes? she asked. Try looking a little higher. Yes, but, but there's something under your shirt there. Thanks for noticing, but that's not w Then she paused and looked down. 
The letters from her concert T-shirt could be seen through her white button-up work blouse. Oh, uh, sorry about that, he said, and did his best not to grin. I was just trying to read it. It says Farewell Tour 1995 on it, she explained. Then she decided to throw him a bone. And you're forgiven for staring. I appreciate that, especially since just this one time, Mason. Don't press your luck. He put up his hands in mock surrender. You were saying before? Uh, I don't remember any more. She scowled, trying to think back. Oh, I had a scare when I was coming in. Well, you've certainly come to the right place. She went on. There was a mop bucket somebody had left right at the top of the stairs, filled with the dirtiest, brownest water you can imagine. Smelly. The sort of thing you probably bathe in. It came out a bit meaner than she had intended, but Mason just took it in stride. Uh-huh, he said, nonplussed. Go on. And I trip over the mop handle and come about two inches from bringing the whole thing down the stairs on top of me. The mop bucket full of my bathwater. Right. Not a nice way to go out. But it didn't tip over? Not really. Just sloshed a bit and righted itself. She frowned. In retrospect, maybe not such a thrilling story after all. Why did you tell me I'd come to the right place? I, I meant the hotel, he said, his voice dropping a bit in volume. The bed and breakfast, you mean? Well, because it's haunted, of course. Oh, yeah, obviously, she said, not amused, but almost wishing he were serious, because this place could have used the excitement. Any excitement. But the subject came up again, later that same night. Mason? she asked as he came back from his lunch break. It was just after 11 p.m., and a guest had checked in an hour before, and one had called the desk asking for an extra pillow at 22. And nothing since then. Did you interview for this job in— Yes, he was quick to answer, kindly not adding duh to his reply. In a bookstore? she finished, then meeting his eyes, which made him hold off on speaking again. Like I did? No. He broke eye contact with her and felt around his pockets for his cell phone, which, per Mrs. Bice's instructions, was in a drawer in the break room, just like Natalie's. I uh, interviewed in the park, then on Vernon, Maine. The one with the Pocahontas statue? Natalie said, remembering seeing it when she'd gotten lost and tried, unsuccessfully, to get her phone to redirect her. She'd noticed how prominent the breasts were on the statue and wondered what was up with that, like something painted on the side of a fighter plane in World War II. Uh, Sacagawea, actually, Mason said. Uh, she was from around here, you know. Why in the park? Well, uh, Connie didn't want me to know where I'd be working. You know, she's as paranoid as a stoned shoplifter. Why? Natalie asked, putting just enough frustration into the word to let him know she wanted a straight answer. He blinked. You've been here a month, and you don't know? Two weeks. Know what? That the place is haunted. 
She couldn't help but smile. That again. Mason was dorky, but in a fun way. I'm sure it is. He put up his hand, like he was swearing on a Bible. No, I'm serious. It's completely and totally haunted. Natalie thought back. That makes sense, actually. What makes sense? Mrs. Bice. She asked me about ghosts and told me they didn't exist right before she hired me. They do exist, he said solidly, allowing no argument. Here, at this hotel. It's not a hotel, it's a bed and breakfast. You're very pretty, he said, then went right on. I've seen two ghosts here. One was a little girl, in the upstairs hall. The other was an old man that lived on my street when I was a kid. He hung himself. Too much pain. Everybody talked about it when it happened. Why did you say I was pretty? Natalie asked. It just came out. But you don't seem too surprised about the ghosts. Did someone else tell you about the night? No. But I thought about why the old lady would ask me if I believed in them, and I started working here and put two and two together. Do you not believe me? Mason wondered. Sure. People say I'm pretty from time to time. About the ghosts, he all but shouted. Then he looked around and lowered his voice again. Most people would be blown away to hear I've seen any ghosts, let alone two. He had a point there. How do you know the first one was a ghost? Because she looked like one. He did this wavy thing with his hands. The way she moved wasn't right. She had a coat on in July. There was something wrong with her eyes. Natalie made direct eye contact again. And you're sure she was a ghost? Mason didn't look away this time. Yeah. I talked to her father the next day. She'd come to see him. I can't remember her name, but she'd accidentally drowned during a family vacation two or three years ago. That was here? At the bed and bre- No. It was back east somewhere. New Hampshire, Vermont, New England, one of those states. He told you this? Yeah. Yeah, he told me all about it. Seems pretty casual for somebody who'd just seen his little girl's ghost. He raised his eyebrows, eager to share a secret. Well, that's the thing. This is the most haunted place in the world. Of course it is she said, willing to listen to him, maybe even consider it. But he'd taken it too far. I mean it. People come here to meet ghosts. Uh-huh. And do other people believe you when you tell them this? I, I don't tell other people. We're sworn to secrecy. Who is? The staff. The guests. Didn't Connie Bice go over this with you? Make you... Sign some kind of contract saying you wouldn't... Wouldn't divulge anything I witness or am told about noble oaks, Natalie quoted. There you go. And you signed it. How do you know that I signed it? Because you wouldn't be working here if you didn't. The old bat's terrified of word getting out about this place. About it being haunted, she asked, obvious scorn in her tone. Yeah. It's a weird situation. Even for a haunted house. You'll see. She squinted at him. Is this some really elaborate way of hitting on me? 
Mason paused. That depends. Is it working? Sorry, but no. Well, in that case, no. He mimicked the Bible oath again. I swear to God it's the truth. You told me you're an atheist. All right. I swear by Klaatu Barada Nikto it's true. Her squint came again, but lesser this time. You've really seen two ghosts? Yeah. And unless you get fired, you will too. She wasn't planning on getting fired. He seemed much more likely to be. Four. A week went by, and Natalie arrived at the bed and breakfast early, before Mason had shown up. She talked to a couple of the cleaning staff, the accountant, the chef with the funny mustache, hinting at possible weird things they might have seen at Noble Oaks. Nobody was forthcoming. Mason didn't say anything about it that shift. He had a cold and went through half a box of tissues, all by himself. She walked around the building on more than one shift, leaving the front desk unmanned, yes, but waiting until two in the morning to do so, hoping to see or hear something, or even feel one of those cold patches in the air you hear about on reality shows on Discovery or Sci-Fi. Nothing. A month later, Mason brought it up again, out of the blue. Listen, has Bice told you you're working July 2nd yet? Not that Natalie remembered. She said there were certain holidays, like New Year's and Valentine's Day, that I'd have to work, and that I could ask for regular days off and somebody would cover for me. That's somebody being me, he said, and there was a hint of hurt in it. She wondered if Mason really disliked Mrs. Bice as much as he pretended to, or if he saw her as some kind of perpetually disappointed mother figure. Well, the 2nd of July is like... like St. Patrick's Day is to Boston, or Mardi Gras is to New Orleans. To Vernon? To the hotel, he said, then clarified unnecessarily. The bed and breakfast. Why? Because of and he mouthed instead of speaking. The ghosts. Natalie was intrigued. This again. St. Patrick's Day for ghosts. Yeah, pretty much, Mason said through a grin. Just then, he was almost handsome. Almost. He relaxed just a bit, as though talking to a friend or family member instead of a pretty girl. You ever hear the old belief about Halloween, that back in Europe or Denmark or wherever, that they said it was the one night that ghosts could roam free and interact with the living? Was that from a movie or something? No. For a moment, he actually showed a bit of backbone. It's from, like, every history book ever written. It's probably the first line on Wikipedia. She shook her head, tempted to give him the finger. He continued. Well, after the part about people wearing stupid costumes, and little kids getting run over while trick-or-treating. Okay, Natalie said, rolling her eyes just a little. Anyway, 
that was the day when the, you know, doorway between this world and the world of the dead was opened and the ghosts could walk around. That Mexican Pixar movie, exclaimed Natalie. The one with the horrible name. Right, Coco. That was about that, I guess. But anyway, for this place, July 2nd is that time. When ghosts come right through the invisible door and roam the hotel's halls. B&B's halls, she corrected, but he wasn't listening. I, I don't know why, but Arturo, the janitor who worked here when I was hired, he told me that it had been that way for a hundred years. That when this was still Idaho territory, the Indians that lived here knew about the ghosts and avoided this whole area like the plague. Arturo was an Indian? No, Mexican. Used to call me Masson. Again, Natalie wondered if Mason were trying, in his inexpert way, to hit on her, or if he was a little bit crazy. Maybe it was both. Tell me about the ghost you saw. Not your uncle, the other one. He wasn't my uncle, just an old guy that lived by my school. Right, right, she said. The other one. He exhaled. I told you. It was a dead little girl. She was wet, dripping on the hall carpet. Because she had drowned to death on their summer vacation. He smiled that she'd been paying attention. Exactly. Except uh, I think he said it was Thanksgiving break, not summer. That made it sadder somehow. And I'll see her ghost if I'm still working here on the 2nd of July. Well, a ghost, not her ghost. He stilled. Wait, why wouldn't you be working here? Hey, if you're thinking of quitting, at least wait until then. Until July. I mean it. It'll change your life. And it changed yours. Sure. His eyes got bigger, contemplating it all. Knowing that there really is something else? Beyond all this? Beyond life? Yeah. It... Totally. She didn't think it could have made that big an impact if he was still working as a night clerk for $15 an hour. How? Well, for one, I told you you were pretty. Which you totally are, by the way. And before seeing ghosts, I never would have dared do that. I used to get crazy nervous around girls. As opposed to the Leonardo DiCaprio she was interacting with today. Great. He took a step toward her, but by the look in his eyes, he wasn't about to try anything. Listen, you've got to work that shift. He said it with intensity and a kind of benign sincerity. If you want to quit the next day, go right ahead. Lots of people do, actually. But work the ghost shift. Is that what they call it? He shrugged. Well, I just did. If you want to call it that, too, then it'll be two people. All right, she said. I'll be working that night. Everybody will. Even the morning shifters. Ooh, she deadpanned. The morning shifters. How exotic. He wilted a bit, 
though she didn't know why. We'll... we'll talk then. It's only, what, two more months? I want to know what you see. All right, she said, though she had only been toying with the idea of quitting. She'd had a revolting amount of credit card debt to pay off when she'd taken the job, and hadn't even gotten it halfway down. You too. Five. In the days that followed, Natalie found literally nobody who would back up Mason's claim she was working in a haunted house. Andrew, the prim, blonde morning clerk that relieved Natalie at seven each morning, told her he didn't know anything about that, even taking it as a joke at first. Donald, the dour, rotund weekday janitor, merely shook his bald head and said, Hey, hey, none of that, which Natalie puzzled with for an hour. She asked Audra, the elderly cook, Is anything special about the 2nd of July? Mrs. Bice said that I couldn't have it off. Audra, who sometimes had white hair and sometimes had a bluish purple, honestly, it took Natalie several shifts to realize they were both wigs, frowned and said, Something of a town holiday, dear. You'll see. When Natalie pressed her, like for the city's founding or something? The cook had said, It'll be fine. Try not to stress yourself about it. Cleaning lady Vero merely shook her head and said, I know working then, and proceeded to pretend her English was much weaker than it had ever been in previous conversations. Kayla, the disconcertingly tall housekeeping supervisor, came right out and said, Young lady, that's a ridiculous notion, and I think you've been warned not to talk about it. Am I wrong there? Natalie couldn't really argue with that, and decided to stop asking, for fear that word would get back to Mrs. Bice about it. She needed this job, even though it was always a challenge to keep from dying of boredom. June was ending, and Mrs. Bice was waiting for her when Natalie arrived at the B&B, only three minutes late but still enough for the owner to take her to task over it. Sorry about that, was all Natalie said, thinking about her debts, and if working for her sister-in-law at the dry-cleaning shop in Boise wouldn't be preferable. That's not what I'm here for today, Miss Whitmore, her boss said, her lips thin and even frownier than usual. I'm here to talk to you about next week. Next Thursday night. Natalie knew exactly which night that was. Mason kept reminding her, in subtle and not-so-subtle ways, but still pretended to think about it. "'I think I'm working, then.' "'Of course you are,' said the old woman. "'Everybody works the second. Natalie said nothing in response to that. "'Do you have an inkling as to why?' Mrs. Bias asked her, her eyes studying Natalie's own looking for lies, or perhaps signs of having been smoking, cigarettes or otherwise. July 4th weekend? Natalie guessed. Well, there is that. Though most folks go to parks or shows to watch the fireworks, not here. Constance by straightened her back, and a cellophane-like crackling rang out. The second of July night shift tends to be unusual. 
You will need to be on your toes. The phone will ring, probably often. Sometimes the guests will have unsettling things to say. Natalie wanted to ask what sorts of things, but felt like this was a test, so kept silent a little longer. You needn't be unsettled, Miss Whitmore. It's all part of the charm of this place. My parents ran it when I was a girl, and July 2nd always meant something unusual. There was that word again. Natalie's mouth got away from her. Unusual how? Extraordinary. Has no one spoken to you about this? Bice's jaw tightened. Perhaps one of the cleaning girls? No. She did not elaborate. Sometimes people see things. In their rooms, or outside their rooms. You needn't believe nor disbelieve what they say. Merely reassure them, offer to bring them something, or assist them with checking out. Quietly and efficiently, with as little melodrama as possible. Natalie swallowed. I don't understand. Bring them something? We stock alcohol here on New Year's and the first week of July. You don't need to advertise it, but if a lodger needs a drink, quietly bring her or him one. She gestured at the refrigerator at the back of the employee lounge. I'll make certain there's sufficient on the day. We sell alcohol the first week of July. We don't sell it. Merely dispense it. Nothing expensive, mind you. Mrs. Bice smiled, but it wasn't convincing. She was too out of practice. Mason and Mrs. O'Barrow will also be working that night. They will help you. Help me dispense alcohol, Natalie asked. Help you manage the guests, Mrs. Bice practically snapped. They will be afraid, or delighted, or confused, or all three. Pretend to listen, but suggest to them that they'd be disbelieved by anyone they told their outlandish story to. If you must... Outlandish story? Natalie asked, still pretending she hadn't heard about the ghosts. But even if she hadn't, she'd still be asking. She was convinced. The old woman let out a breath hating to discuss it. They will spout nonsense about dead relatives or friends or dead enemies or dogs. Your job, every other night of the year, is to be polite and attractive, which you do fine. But the 2nd of July, your job is to gently urge all guests to keep quiet about their experiences, which you can kindly suggest no one would believe and are best kept to themselves. Natalie shook her head. Are you talking about ghosts? Then she remembered Andrew prissily chuckling when she'd asked him about it, and said, This is a joke, right? Mrs. Bice closed her mouth, her lips tightening again, then said, Not a very funny one. Now, do you have any questions? Natalie had hundreds. This seemed to be the one time she could get them, some of them at least, answered. A few, yes. You're saying that some of the guests will call me complaining about ghosts? 
and that I am to listen, but not to agree with them, and to suggest they're crazy? Mrs. Bice put up a finger. I'd suggest Mason answer these questions for you, but that poor idiot seems to have fallen appallingly in love with you. Natalie had no time to reply, though how she would have, she didn't know. Which I'm sure you've noticed. That makes him less than useless, and I'll have him replaced as soon as I can. She sighed, the tremendous burden on her shoulders almost too much to bear. So I'll try to answer at least the one. No, not some of the guests. All of the guests. Unless they've been here before, or think they've dreamed it. Even then, at checkout, you'll need to discuss it with them. Discuss ghosts with them, Natalie said, and it sounded bitchy, even to her ears, which was not her intention. Oh, get over yourself, the old woman said. Everybody believes in ghosts. You show me someone who says they don't, and I'll show you someone who believes in something much more dangerous. Every guest that stays here will have a supernatural experience. That's how it's always been. Most of them will be hesitant to spread it around, human nature being what it is. You can calm them, or hold their hands, or get them drunk, or if they're men, do that thing with your eyes to get them to open up to you. Then let them know in no uncertain terms that they should keep quiet about their experience. It's too special to share. Nobody else would understand. What if people think they're crazy? What if it means they are crazy? That sort of thing. Well, it sounds like you're paying me to be a counselor or something. And paying you well, Natalie, Mrs. Bice said, using her given name for the first time. Not in a friendly, personal manner, but in a condescending way. You'll get a generous bonus in your check for the July 2nd shift, especially if you comport yourself well. Natalie didn't know what comport meant, but it sounded like knowing which fork to use and to raise her pinky whilst drinking tea in high company. But, Mrs. Bice, I don't think I— The woman waved her hand at the girl, dismissing her concerns. Oh, talk to Mason about it when he comes in Thursday— he once talked a hysterical woman out of her room who had locked herself in the toilet, pretending she'd been a victim of an elaborate prank. Gave her a free weekend here to use in the future, as way of apology. The hint of a smile. Of course, she never came back. Natalie now had three or four new questions. Hysterical woman. She'd had a dead twin, evidently. Was out of her mind. Regardless... I have to go home now, Miss Whitmore. As I said, Mason can answer questions for you. Mrs. O'Barrow might still be on if you need more examples. She turned to go, then stopped, practically spinning around on her orthopedic shoes. Oh, and please refrain from telling Mason I'm letting him go. It may be weeks before I find a suitable replacement. Natalie hadn't really considered telling her co-worker what the old lady had said, but she thought she would now. Of course. You'll do fine. It's only one night a year. If you must, have a drink yourself. 
though not enough to become sloppy, mind you. I understand, Natalie said, though it was more complicated than that. Again, the owner turned to go. Mrs. Bice, will you be working that night? The old woman walked toward the parking lot exit. Not at all. I always go home by seven, as you know. And she stepped out the door. Future Rish here. So this is where we're going to stop. I recorded this episode at the end of September 2019. It was intended to be my Halloween episode, and uh, I had just finished The Night Clerk. Uh, in fact, here's a little outtake from that recording. This is the worst episode ever, isn't it? I have no idea how to explain this stuff because I just f***ing wrote the story. I just finished the story the last time I was here. I think it was two weeks ago today, or three week, two weeks ago today. I've got no perspective. It's too soon. Hey, look at all the deer. Gosh, it's cool to see him look at me. And uh, I had not recorded it. I had never edited it. I had no idea how long it was going to be all formatted and stuff and, and in audio. And then my laptop died and uh, there was no way to get the night clerk off of the laptop. I, I, I was able to take it in. They, they plugged it into a, a just regular monitor and that was fine. Everything was fine. We're all fine here. How are you? But I had lost so much time there that I thought, dude, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this for Halloween 2019. And so I just set it aside, postponed it, and did Touching the Other Side instead, which is the third Dead and Breakfast story, uh, which I talk about in this episode. It was doable because it was shorter and because I had access to that. But here we are a year later, and Night Clerk is all edited and revised and long. And so I didn't know in 2019 how long it would be. Uh, and so I'm stopping the story right here, and we will pick up for you just next week. But for me, more than a year later, and what a year it's been, but I'll talk about that in next week's episode. and. Enjoy uh, more of the last 2019 show. Bye. So that's where I'm going to stop today. I had forgotten that the story was that long. I guess it was just too recently that I wrote it. I realized today, just now, while I was recording, that I finished the story two weeks ago tomorrow. So I don't have much perspective on it. I just thought, okay, we can get it out in time for Halloween if we record the episode right now and if we sit down and record the story within a couple of weeks. So, there's that. There you are. The Night Clerk. Now, I said that this was the second completed story. It's not the second story that I started. You've heard this already if you listened to the True Ghost Encounter episode. But I had this idea of releasing an anthology of stories that took place in this same bed and breakfast. They were all ghost stories, 
that take place at a bed and breakfast in Vernon, Idaho, that is the old faithful of haunted houses. Every year on the 2nd of July, everybody is visited by a ghost. And I, I decided while writing this one that it's okay if the bed and breakfast is haunted on other days of the year as well. But everybody who stays at the bed and breakfast on the 2nd of July gets a ghostly visitor on that night. Oh dear, there's two deer. Oh, and a fawn. Hey. My idea was to put out an anthology with this premise and invite people to write stories that take place in that universe. And Big Anklevich had this idea, which was very ambitious, of paying professional authors that are established to write a story that is set in this place. And we never did that. But if we had, how cool would that have been to get somebody that we liked to write a story set in this world that I have created? We'll never know. But I had the idea of putting out an anthology with stories that people had submitted, and I would have written the first one, True Ghost Encounter, and then I would write the last story, which was about the owner of the bed and breakfast. So that was story number two in my head. But I never wrote it. I only, I had a, a little paragraph of what it was going to be about and what was going to, who the ghost was that was going to visit. But we never did anything with it. And then I also jotted like a sentence that I wanted to write a story about the girl that ran the reception desk at the bed and breakfast, that she gets a job there, she sees a ghost, and it changes her life, and she quits that very day and goes off to fulfill her, her potential. That was another sentence, and, and I never wrote that, and I never even thought about it again. In fact, I was surprised just this year when I was looking through my notes to see that sentence because I had no memory of writing it. I, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so weird that years ago I had considered writing a story about the night clerk. Well, eventually I did release the story, and, and to me that is... I'm not going to say good enough, but that is good because it's out there. And you never know. Somebody could read it and say, I want to write a story set in this place. I've got an idea for this. Or I like this little reference of a person right here that was staying at the place. I would like to write the story about them. That was what I wanted to happen, and it didn't happen, and it still may. But then... In 2019, I came up with an idea for a second story, and it was about a John Edwards type, somebody who makes their living communing with the dead, with the afterlife. You know, there's somebody in this crowd, their name starts with a J or an A. Oh no, they have a, an A in their name somewhere. And they've lost somebody that, that's close to them. And that somebody is a, a parent. 
yeah, it's 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 a it's a, it's a parent, or it's a grandparent, or it's a teacher. It's a mentor. It's definitely an authority figure, an older person. So I started writing this story about that, and the title of that story is the title of the television show that this medium has. And what happens when somebody like that goes to this bed and breakfast? I wrote it up to the point where the guy gets on the plane to go to Idaho. And then I stopped. And that's all she wrote, kids. It isn't, actually. Because I met a girl named Natalie, and there was something about her that I really, really liked. I remember the first moment that I saw her, I thought, huh, there's something about her. I don't know what it is, but I know that I can't live without her. Wait, something in the way she moves. No, <laughs> no, uh, it just it, I, I found her really interesting. Yes, attractive, but interesting. She had a, a personality and a sense of humor and a... She had what the French call a certain I don't know what. And I thought, I'm going to write a story about her. But what is the story? What could it be? And I still haven't really done it. Sorry. There was a girl that I briefly knew, and her name was Macy. And she was a receptionist. And I thought, God, do I dare say it? I guess I will. She wasn't particularly good and she wasn't particularly friendly, but she was very, very pretty. And she had this job as a receptionist where it's her job to like welcome people and to smile. And uh, I'll, I'll just come right out and say it. Her job was to be pretty, to have an attractive face. The first thing that you see when you come in to this clinic and it didn't really matter if she was good at her job, if she was personable or smart or friendly, it was just important that she be pretty. And I thought, well, okay, I will write this story about Macy and what happens to her on the 2nd of July. And I don't know what kind of story it was going to be when it was about Macy. But when I met this girl, Natalie, I thought, okay, I'm, you know what? I'm going to combine these two characters because I really liked Natalie. And what, what if they were one person? And so this story was born and it ended up way too long, like almost everything that I write. But I, I'm not going to make apologies for that. It, it, it was as long as I felt like it needed to be. The thing that's important is that I got to the end. I finished it. And now you're hearing it. Isn't that good? Although... I'm wondering now if maybe it's too long for one episode, in which case I guess I have to say, okay, well, we will finish the story next time. But for now, I'd just like to remind you that it's sort of an open world, the Dead and Breakfast series. You can take one of the characters that has been mentioned, as long as it's not the owner, and write a story about it and send it to me. And I will give you some notes on it if I feel like I need to. And then if you want, maybe you can release it connected to mine or, uh, you know, I don't know. 
how that works. I'll give you some notes on it. And then, yeah, you can do whatever you want with it. You can publish it, sell it on your own, or, you know, maybe we could do a, a release here or, or something. Maybe I can just promote it on my show. Not that you're going to get a lot of sales from that, but still, it's neat. It's cool that that's a possibility. Uh, feel free to contact me and, and let me know. And, and if you want to just send me like your proposal, I prefer a June wedding. No, if you want to send me your proposal, I could give you some notes on it. And, uh, or if you have questions about how does it work, what's it all mean, Basil? I would be happy to answer those questions too. I would really like to start a tradition of releasing dead and breakfast stories. If not yearly, then, you know, like every other Halloween or something like that. And I have this idea of doing sidekick chronicle stories every other year on here. We'll see if I manage that. But I hope you have enjoyed what you've heard and that you will join me next time. And uh, that you like the idea as much as I do of a place like this where you can count on ghosts appearing. Anyhow, I've been Rich Outfield. And who can that be knocking at my door? The show you have just listened to is produced under what's known as a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 license. But it means you are free to download and share the files as you like, but it does not belong to you. Hence, you cannot charge for it or alter it, take credit for them or attempt to sell them. I wouldn't take credit for them either. <clears throat> the music used in the episode was by one Kevin McLeod from the website incompetech.com, also under a Creative Commons license. And please consider going to www.patreon.com forward slash reshoutfield to support the show if you appreciate any part of the madness. Good night. Uh, I had an idea for a story a couple of years ago, and I, I never came up with a great title for it. I always wanted to call it Undecorated. Like a soldier completes his tour and he's undecorated, it means that he didn't earn any medals, I guess. He didn't distinguish himself. I'm not, I'm not sure what the actual term undecorated means. But the gist of the story was this, that a family with a rebellious teen daughter moves into a little town. And it's one of those little towns that I love that has a tradition, that has something unusual about it. And the tradition of this town, it's not so much a tradition as it is a lack of tradition. This is the town that dreaded Halloween. Halloween is not really celebrated in this town. And of course you can celebrate what you want, but the town charter says absolutely no Halloween decorations. No jack-o'-lanterns, no inflatables, no funky lights, no cobwebs, no giant spiders, no skeletons hanging from the trees. 
no phallic symbols hanging from the rafters that will bother passers-by, no spooky recordings, no bats hanging from the light fixtures, nothing. And like I said, the teenage girl is rebellious. And one of the things that she misses about her old house and her old family was Halloween, the Halloween tradition. And so so a couple of days before Halloween, she puts what they have in a box, what they brought from Minneapolis or wherever they came from, out. She puts a plastic pumpkin on the walk and she puts a, you know, Frankenstein's monster sign that says, you know, enter if you dare on the front door. And somebody comes to the house, you know, like a neighbor or a member of the town council or whatever. And they knock and they talk to the girl's mother and say, you have to take this stuff down. This stuff is not allowed in our town. It is not. In fact, when you bought this house, didn't somebody not talk to you about that? And she says, yeah, I, I, they did. And, I, you know, I apologize. My daughter is upset and she wanted it to feel like home. And we would always decorate for Halloween at home. And they're like, well, that's as may be, but it has to be removed. And, I, you know, I apologize. But if you won't do it, we will do it. I will do it. And this woman physically takes the pumpkin or takes down, tears down the Frankenstein monster and leaves. And the daughter is incensed. She's furious that somebody would do this. Now, I can't remember if in my story, the neighbor woman or the head of, you know, that town council woman, if she did it herself or if the police showed up and they took it down. But the important thing is how upset the teen daughter becomes and she ends up making her own Halloween decorations out of just whatever they have lying about the house, you know, construction paper or newspaper or whatever it is. And she puts it out as a big FU to the neighborhood, to adults, to authority. And of course, it's not just hysteria. It's not just religion. It's not just a bunch of old fogies on the town council that have made this rule. There is a reason that there are no Halloween decorations in this town. And of course, I leave the story there because I am a piece of crap. It's not, of course. I never got... I never finished the story. I never wrote the story. I just liked that idea of the teen girl not caring about anything. She's sort of shut down. She's super Prozac'd out. And it's when she's told, you know, there's no Halloween, there's no decorations. She kind of breaks out of her funk and she's like, nope, this is something that I care about. And I am going to do what I want. And I liked that. I like that she was unhappy. She was miserable. She missed her dad. And now she wants something. She has a mission. And of course, there are disastrous consequences. I guess I like writing that kind of thing. <laughs> Let me rephrase. I guess I like almost writing that kind of thing. Sorry. Squirrel!
Well, that was a hell of an outtake, wasn't it? Yeah, you may not believe me, but the first 11 minutes of this episode was that. And so now I uh, guess we'll go on with the rest of the episode, which you have already heard. She turned and switched on the bedside lamp. She turned and switched on the bedside. She turned and switched on the bedside. She turned and switched on the bedside lamp that she realized. She turned and switched on the bedside lamp that she realized was identical to the one by her bed. Uh.